And it's so negative in part because it's going to like the essence of our identities, you know, and especially for adolescents where so much of it is based on physical appearance and social comparison. So those two pieces has meant that social media has just walked right in to like the heart of who we are as, as human beings. Just one episode with renowned attachment researcher, Dr. Miriam Steele, was not enough. And so I am thrilled that Dr. Steele is back for part two to discuss her current cutting-edge research on how attachment theory can impact the transmission of body representation from mothers to daughters, and to hear her thoughts on the influence of social media on adolescents' mental health. Dr. Miriam Steele is a professor of clinical psychology at the New School for Social Research, and she's co-director for the Center for Attachment Research. She has such a wealth of knowledge about how attachment works and why it's so important for parents to understand. Adolescents today are really struggling, and in particular, teen girls are reporting some pretty troubling statistics. Results from the recent findings from the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey found that a majority of teen girls... 57% said that they felt persistently sad or hopeless, which is the highest rate in a decade. It is so important to me that we are sharing the research that's happening in the field of psychology as it's being done so that we can really work to combat this epidemic and help adolescents in real time. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Miriam Steele. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Welcome back, Dr. Steele. So, so grateful that we get to do a part two. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So, you know, if you were listening to this podcast, if you haven't already listened to last week's episode, the part one, where I spoke with Dr. Miriam Steele about um, like sort of the, the foundation of the attachment theory research, how she got into it, her research, as well as sort of kind of the 101 on attachment theory and how we measure it and how we understand what it means in terms of the parent-child relationship, go back and listen to that because I think that that's a very sort of foundational place to start. Today, you know, we're really going to kind of jump from there into how do we take these ideas and apply it to um, different types of research that are, that are being done, some of the, your research, um, and looking a lot at the intergenerational transmission of attachment styles and other features that kind of get passed down from parent to child and how that could be a good thing sometimes and also how we can modify it if it's not a, if it's not adaptive for the family. Um, Great. So can you start perhaps by maybe talking a little bit about um, your research right now on the transmission of body representations from mothers to their daughters? Sure. Um, So this is one of our, as we call it, front burner projects at the Center for Attachment Research at the New School for Social Research. Um, And this study um, has very interesting, I think, origins 
in that um, I came to the new school nearly 19 years ago. And as I was moving here, I was um, on the board with uh, one of the leading figures to do with bodies, eating disorder, feminist uh, psychoanalysis, Susie Orbach. And Susie and I were um, on a we were on the board of a psychotherapy center um, and uh, Susie challenged me and said, I think there's a connection between the transmission of body representations from mothers to daughters and attachment. Um, it would be great now that you're going to New York to do a study looking at that intergenerational transmission. Um, so I arrived here and Susie connected me with uh, some of her colleagues at the Women's Center Therapy Institute, which is a feminist psychoanalytic institute, very much focusing on issues to do with uh, women and their bodies. And I knew very well how to measure the intergenerational attachment piece using the adult attachment interview and strain situation. But I was at a loss for how do we incorporate aspects of the body, especially if we're looking at the transmission, which would need a longitudinal study. That is looking at um, babies, baby girls um, early on, then watching them develop through toddlerhood, early childhood, and then perhaps adolescence to really pick up on the ways in which uh, they their feelings and thoughts about their bodies might be related to the way their mothers um, might be thinking of that. So we uh, got a group together and started thinking about this. And I happened to have a very gifted PhD student, Tiffany Hake, who went to hear a lecture by someone called Paulina Kernberg at Wild Cornell, who had done a study looking at adolescence and uh, this incredible innovative uh, tool or assessment called the mirror interview uh, where you have uh, individuals stand in front of a mirror and you ask them a set of questions about what they see what do they like about what they see what do they like what about what they're wearing what do they not like if their mother was standing here what would she say if their fathers were standing here what would he say um uh, do you ever uh, get the sense that the image that you're looking at is younger or older than you fatter or thinner um, do you ever get a sense that what you're looking at is not related to you, that you don't recognize that kind of image? And so Tiffany brought that back and it felt like I received this gift from the heavens um, in terms of now finally having some way of empirically that is um, doing an assessment that could tie in to this transmission of attachment. So with Tiffany, we embarked on a study looking at mothers uh, using the mirror interview and the adult attachment interview to get the attachment representations as well as body representations. And then they brought their toddler daughters uh, to the lab at the new school. And we did an assessment where you um, sit the toddler in front of a mirror and you capture a video image of what they see um, or their response to their own reflection. And we found a few uh, very interesting features. One of them was that if the mothers uh, were classified as securely attached on the adult attachment interview, and it was important that I rated those and a whole other team rated the mirror interview. So there was independence. It wasn't that I knew um, what their responses were to the mirror interview or they didn't know what um, how I had rated their attachment um, interviews. So if the mother was securely attached on the adult attachment interview, she was also much more coherent and reflective when she was talking about what she saw in her own image in the mirror interview. 
So in some ways, that's um, just very kind of astounding that when talking about your experiences in childhood and how coherent you are in terms of giving evidence for what you say, your story hanging together without too much kind of dismissing or idealizing aspects. Um, when you talk about your childhood, you talk about yourself and what you see in the mirror in a similar way in terms of um, a detailed picture and some kind of flexible accessibility to those. Um, we also found that reflect, reflective functioning was higher when talking about your own body and what you see um, if you were securely attached on the AAI. So we had that kind of um, validity check on there's something happening there in terms of a relationship between attachment um, and the body representations. In terms of um, the babies, we also found something um, very interesting. It was a PhD student uh, called Kristen Tosi who did the analysis of the toddlers in front of the mirror. And what she found, and she was also um, unaware or blind, as we call it, um, probably need to use a different word these days, um, was unaware of the ratings that we uh, use for the mother's um, mirror interview or the attachment measure, that the babies whose mothers were securely attached in the adult attachment interview, those babies were able to look at their image and then um, look away. The babies whose mothers were dismissing were uh, unable to look or looked away from their own image as if they were trying to kind of, you know, block that out and, and couldn't engage. And then the babies whose mothers were preoccupied or unresolved with respect to loss or trauma, those babies couldn't stop looking at their own image as if they were searching somewhere in that mirror for someone to connect with them. So there we found this uh, very interesting intergenerational transmission um, of not only attachment, but these body representations or some, some connection with the way that their mothers felt and talked about uh, their own bodies. Then a third PhD student, Esther McBurney-Goach, uh, uh, came along and she asked the question, what is it about the mirror interview in terms of this experiential piece? It's not an easy thing to ask someone to look at their own image in the mirror. Um, as Susie Orbach says, you know, for most women, we walk around kind of from the head up and kind of quite disconnected um, from our bodies, despite being quite obsessed uh, with issues around body size, body image, um, all of those features. So Esther wanted to ask the question, uh, what difference does it make to actually put people in front of the mirror and ask these questions? Or is it just the questions themselves um, being asked in an interview format? So she did a study um, where she took 100 uh, undergraduates um, and half she did with the mirror and half she did the same questions just face to face. And she found something very interesting in that when you are in front of the mirror, your reflective functioning and coherence takes a dive, goes much lower, right? There's something about um, how kind of disorganizing it is to, or how impactful it is to be looking at yourself um, in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And that fits in with a lot of um, clinical data on objectification, um, women um, being very concerned with how they're the self as seen versus the self as felt. Can I ask a question about the the second the, that sort of doing the the mirror interview without the mirror, um, mm -hmm. and finding that it reduced reflective functioning and coherence? Was that 
separate and independent of attachment style? Um, well, it was uh, connected insofar that if you were securely attached, you did a little bit better in both cases. But overall, as a group, those in front of the mirror did do worse than those um, who are just being asked in an interview format without the mirror. Got it. That's interesting. Because like, as you're talking about this, I keep thinking about the fact that like, you know, we talked in our last uh, episode when we were talking about the prevalence of like secure attachment in the general population is like, you know, 55, 65, sometimes even 70%. When mm-hmm. you look at, you know, body challenges among women, at least. And I would wager to say it's not exclusive to women. It's probably similar findings, which you did a male population that that's more than 55% of the population, you know, way more than 70. Like, you know, the, the, that this feels like something almost like a separate phenomenon too, that like we have internalized as a culture, maybe even globally, that our bodies are sort of problematic in some way, like looking at them is, mm-hmm. is, is triggering in some ways. Or I think one of the, the key features is that there is an interaction with attachment that if you are securely attached, it acts like a buffer. Um, so mm-hmm. you are seeing your body. So yes, we are all impacted by the images from media and the messages from media, especially in these days where social media is, is so prevalent um, and from a very young age. But those that are securely attached um, don't have those kinds of negative uh, features in terms of body dissatisfaction and poor body image um, as a result. So there's something about attachment perhaps being a buffer against those very mm-hmm. negative pernicious images or ideas coming from the social media. So it's not that we're not impacted at all if we're securely attached, but not as much. There is, there's something there that is protective. Right. Which is interesting, right? Because that's kind of consistent with what we see in general around secure attachment. And when you're looking at in other, like in relationship to other things, like Mm -hmm. anxiety, depression, trauma, adverse events, like it's not that it prevents all bad things from ever happening to us or all all negative outcomes, but it does seem to act as a buffer, reducing the intensity of it or the... Yes. And maybe the mechanism of that buffer is, you know, being able to kind of metabolize more negative feeling states than those individuals who bring in defenses against painful feelings like those that are dismissing and are avoidant of them or those that are preoccupied who just lean into them um, too much and that what you know the the mechanism around that protective factor or buffer may be you know an approach to the world where you know, you have a look at it, you might feel some of it, but it doesn't necessarily get internalized. It doesn't necessarily go inside in the same way. Mm. Yes, that makes so much sense. But we also just um, picking up on the um, the gender uh, issue. So uh, we have a student who's finishing up his PhD right now, Anthony Boyardo, who's, who did the mirror interview with a group of gay men and looking at aspects of um, their experience in terms of body masculinity, um, all kinds of, you know, different variations in terms of um, homophobia as well and how they see themselves uh, in terms of issues around gender. So he's, he's finishing up that work. And another student looked at uh, some of these aspects in a group of dancers. Uh, it's a re- uh, Amanda Rena Miller, um, wondering whether because of what they do with their bodies, would that have an influence 
um, as well and has some very interesting uh, results in terms of dancers and non-dancers. And we have some new studies looking at individuals with uh, physical disabilities, both mm-hmm. um, uh, congenital as well as acquired in terms of um, how do they feel and see themselves in their body? Is there a link with attachment? Because, um, of course, uh, especially those with congenital difficulties, the whole attachment relationship would be impacted by extra care and medical appointments um, and procedures that require the caregiver to be involved in a way um, that is different uh, and um, probably longer lasting in terms of development um, that way. So we're looking at some very interesting data with that and a new study looking at um, the bi-directional influences in adolescence and social media use. Uh, We're looking at uh, the consumption of Instagram and we have a way of coding where you look at in Instagram um, and the kinds of images that you're consuming and linking that with uh, psychological features, including attachment. That is incredible because, I mean, I know that every parent listening, that's one of the things that made them click on this episode is like, (laughs) oh God, all I hear about right now is that teen girls who consume social media are suffering and they're struggling and they're scared. I was just at a um, a meeting yesterday with a community mental health organization working with high schoolers and all of it was about how do we understand what the challenges that these kids are experiencing better? How do we support them better? How do we find resources that they'll accept because they don't want to hear grownups telling them what to do and how to do it? Um, and so I think there's a lot of people kind of trying to figure out how to solve this problem, but I don't think we fully understand it. So this is like, what are your thoughts on, like, I know the research is still ongoing, but like, what are your preliminary kind of thoughts around it and what you expect to see? Yeah. So this is a study that we're just kind of launching and collecting um, some of this data. So we're very much concentrating on the coding system where um, Mm -hmm. we've been able to figure out how to get people to view their Instagram that they normally would be viewing um, and then deciding on whether the image images are more body ideals images versus body functional um, kinds of images. Uh, And so we're, that's kind of our first step, but um, exciting for us because we're at the new school. So we have access to um, colleagues at Parsons school of design. Um, So those working in the design and technology side. So there's a very gifted colleague, David Carroll, who's helping us. Um, in terms of unpacking, uh, and, and some of that has made us even more um, afraid of what's going on in terms of the algorithms um, and uh, the motivation of some of the social media platforms, you know, to put out their material that is, is probably, or we know is harmful, um, but it gets people hooked and keep coming back um, to, those, to those sites. And it's... Um, not very transparent exactly how all of this works. So we're turning now to the to the adolescents to engage with us. Um, and that's um, actually generated a lot of kind of interest in, you know, thinking about the body, thinking about um, social media use. And yeah, I think we're all just at this stage trying to understand. But there was a, it was a PhD student who did a very interesting study. She had undergraduates um, uh, report on how much Instagram or how much social media they use. And they had to use, I don't know, I think it was over three hours a day or something. And then uh, 
ran a randomly controlled trial. So that's kind of the gold standard in clinical science on how to show that an intervention perhaps works. So her intervention, um, so this brought a lot of envy for those of us who spent a lot of time thinking about how to construct an intervention. Her intervention was simply to ask these young students not to use Instagram for more than one hour a day. And she measured their um, body image and body representations before they did this reduction. And then three weeks later, where the only difference was instead of looking at Instagram for your three hours a day, you would look at it for one hour a day. And their um, body images increased positively um, and their body dissatisfaction increased. And the only thing that she introduced them to was to take away just the amount of um, their scrolling around for these images. Mm. So it, it, you know, I think we're building up, you know, the obvious piece over, if you look at, you know, those kinds of images all day long, it's going to do something to the way you feel about yourself. Yeah. I, I mean, if you think about it, like kind of the way that the mirror interview was activating, looking at the images of yourself in the mirror, the, the visual, I'm curious, like if you were to like do brain scans and like have the brain light up as someone's looking at the mirror of themselves and you have right. a second, you know, have a brain scan of someone looking at Instagram images of other bodies. I wonder yes. if similar places would light up. Like I could imagine it's a similar effect of like it's activating those yes. same parts of, def of the defense or fear or anxiety or you fill in the blank. Yeah, no, that would be a fascinating study um, to do is, you know, put someone in a scanner and show themselves images of themselves that, you know, whether we could do it with the whole mirror factor, because there's something very important in terms of when you look at yourself at the mirror, knowing that it's you, but it's also in, in kind of real time, how you move, how, you know, all of all of that, that further goes into connecting that image with you. Um, yeah. You know, so, so that, yeah, that would be an interesting study um, for sure to do. Yeah. But it's like the idea that if a, if a teenage girl is looking at Instagram three hours a day and looking at pictures of, and it obviously depends, I would imagine the content, but assuming it's your average Instagram page is, you know, posts are about, you know, peers or slightly older women influencers showing you all the things that they're doing because it's a highlight reel. And how just reducing that can make such an impact on how we view ourselves. Yeah. Like, but then my thought is like, as a parent, I mean, my kids are younger. I'm not yet at the place where I'm like having to navigate this. Although I work with a lot of adolescents and pre-adolescents in my practice who are navigating it. And like, good luck. My thought is like, good yes. luck getting them to say, sure, I'll just three hours to one. No problem. Like what's yeah. the, how do we get our kids to understand? I think if they exactly. understood, if they could be educated consumers of technology and understand a little bit more of the mechanisms by which they are being manipulated to some degree by these tech companies and the algorithms, but also are being Im impacted negatively in a pretty profound way by it, that perhaps their motivation would be more accessible. Yeah. Those kinds of um, campaigns when, you know, when we know how, negative it is and then on the other hand you know it, and it's so negative in part because it's going to like the essence of our identities you know and especially mm -hmm. for adolescents where so much of it is based on physical appearance um, and social comparison so those those two pieces 
has meant that social media has just walked right in to like the heart of who we are as, as human beings in terms of developmentally, right? For the adolescent, so much of it is about looking a certain way, having this right pair of sneakers, you know, all of those kinds of features. But it's about, you know, why are you so interested in looking at all these images? There's something about, well, where do I line up with all of this? You yeah. know, am I bigger, smaller, taller, whatever, all of those kinds of issues, you're getting access to a huge array of different people to compare yourself with, you know, and, and some of that might be fairly positive, you know, um, but for a lot of people it's not because there's, you know, the other piece there, um, being at the new school, we have access to these amazing students, some of whom come from different, um, occupations and then decide to come and study psychology but we have a group that um, studies fashion and so knows about filters you know so they're showing you know these images like oh that one has a filter I'm like how do you know that um, how can you how can you even kind of tell that but you know um, and I'd like to bring in one of those individuals like how do you decide which bit to filter or you know what is the what is the work there on 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 you know some of that where's this coming from or you know how do you do that Right. And I think also the piece of like the adolescence, right? Developmentally, this is a really vulnerable time to be exposed to a lot of this content because I think any human being watching all this stuff is going to compare themselves, right? That's just natural. And and it's a, a reasonable expectation that that would be the response to some degree. But adolescents developmentally are at a place in their development where their goal, their, their task is to sort of deconstruct and reconstruct their identity from, okay, I'm a part of this family and I'm, you know, in relationship to my parents and that's how I kind of figure out who I am and how I move through the world to, I have to sort of rip that open a little bit, move my attention to my peers, move my attention to the world outside of my family and start to reform a more pseudo adult identity. And I'm using like, this is a natural process. This isn't a distorted process, but like, I'm going to use the information from my peer environment and my environment outside my family to inform kind of like a second blueprint. Like if the attachment, the early attachment relationships create the first blueprint, mm -hmm. the sort of blueprint we start building when we exit the nuclear family in this pre-adolescent adolescent period creates this next blueprint. And that's really a normal process. But if we're using all this like really artificial information yeah. to inform that blueprint and to see like not only how other people receive me and respond to me, but how do I compare and show and how do I rank in the world? Like where's my place? That can really distort that blueprint. And that's dangerous. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and we also, you know, have to think about, you know, is this um, features of our context in a Western culture, but what are some of the, you know, how do other cultures um, manage this or how do other adolescents? So um, the other author of that mirror interview is a, a close colleague called, uh, her name is Bernadette Bull Nielsen in Copenhagen. Um, and she's done some very fascinating work using the mirror interview with adolescents in Tanzania. And they come up with very different responses, right? So um, she has this, you know, this incredible video of these young people. When you ask uh, the question, you know, uh, what do you like about their bo your body? And they, they can say a few things. Well, what do you not like? And one of them actually turned around and said, excuse me, didn't even understand the question. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this young person said uh, to Bernadette, you know, um, God gave me this body. Who am I to find fault in it? 
Um, and, you know, then, you know, Bernadette said, well, you know, maybe there's some things you like less than others. And, and so I think the, the young person said, you know, well, I guess maybe my teeth are, are crooked and I don't like that so much. But it's a very different starting point, right, yeah. than yeah. what it is we feed our adolescents uh, here in Western context. Yeah. And it really shows like, you know, we talked in our last episode that like attachment research has been done all over the globe and in many, many, many different cultural settings. And we still seem to find relatively similar results. You know, it's a really, it's a human species condition, right? It's predictable across the human population. This sounds like it's not so much the case. So it's really interesting. And the culture plays a big role. Um, and, you know, when I saw that, you know, my heart kind of sank. Like I was so warmed by that response, but it was kind of like, this is what we are doing to mm-hmm. our young people in contrast. You know, you would yeah. never get that. Never. I mean, highly unlikely would you get that kind of response, um, you know, in a Western kind of context. Yeah. So if, you know, and we know that this is, we've talked about the intergenerational transmission of this body image, you know, how how are you looking at the parent to child? Are you looking at how the attachment of the parent predicts the child's attachment? And are you doing the mere interview with the mother and the child? Um, So in the adolescent Instagram study, uh, we're not doing it with the parent. We're doing um, something like the adult attachment interview. It's a, because they're younger, we're doing, it's called the friends and family interview. That's something that um, Howard Steele and I um, developed exploring, not just relationship with parents, but also with peers, knowing that that's the developmental milestone that that age group, 13 to 17 or 13 to 18 is, is working with, as well as siblings and teachers. Um, Mm -hmm. So a little bit broader, but, you know, very similar kind of features in terms of um, that we use in the attachment interviews. So looking at coherence, looking at reflective functioning, looking at the degree to which the young person sees the parent as a secure base, you know, someone that they can come back to when they are meeting challenges that are overwhelming, um, as well as, you know, do they feel free to explore um, their environments, even if they are then returning back to parents for some kind of checking in or emotional refueling. Yeah. Because the reason I ask this, I'm curious, you know, if mothers who, you know, even like I grew up, I'm 38. So I grew up in a kind of weird little generation where we both did not have social media and did, you know, I was kind of had one foot in both worlds. Mm -hmm. And, but I think like, people who may be a little bit older than me or like bypass the social media stuff altogether in their like early adolescence all the way through adult, like young adulthood, they still have body image issues, right? This is not a new phenomenon that was birthed by social media. And so, you know, when we're, when we're, and I, I say mothers because this is more prevalent, I think among women, but I know this is not exclusive to women at all. But when, we're thinking about our our own body stuff and we're like, I do not want to pass this on to my children. Mm-hmm. I want to help them to have body positivity, to love their body for what it can do, to not feel like they have to constantly compare and to just have like compassion and love for their body, even if maybe I don't have it or I'm working towards it or it's something I've built but over a long process of 
my own work, right? If someone's listening to this and like, how do I keep this from continuing on? Obviously, we know the attachment system is going to be a big protective factor. So working on your own security, like, you know, you're building up your own attachment security and helping your child to develop a secure attachment relationship with you is a, is one piece. But like, what else can we do to prevent this transmission from one parent to a child specifically? Yeah. So it's a, that's a big question. So that's a, that's a tough one. Cause you know, some of this is actually not direct or conscious, you know, um, mm-hmm. There are studies, for example, that mothers um, feed their baby girls differently than they feed their baby boys. So someone did a study looking at videos of mothers um, feeding their very young infants. And with girls, um, they also looked at what they say. And so with girls saying things like, oh, you've had enough, you know, you don't want to get too big um, and pulling the bottle out or pulling the breast out. Um, kind of like that's enough you've, you've had enough whereas with the boys like you want to drink all of that um, and get big and strong you know uh, and so so that you know it's it's highly um, doubtful that those mothers had any inkling that they were making those kinds of distinctions or that they were driven somewhere um, by issues about their own body representations to feed their babies in a different ways is you know is is quite amazing so you know that there's there is material out there, you know, suggesting things like, you know, mothers um, refrain from publicizing that they're on a diet or that, um, you know, all of that fat talk or, you know, mentioning aspects of their own body. Right. So, you know, parents being or uh, the adults in a child's world being very powerful figures for imitation and internalizing those kinds of images. So I think for the mothers um, and fathers who have some of these challenges with their bodies, somewhere to find a a space to work those out so that you're less likely to pass that on um, to the next generation. So the, the, you know, the parents who feel more comfortable in their bodies, um, you know, are less likely to, you know, hand that over. But, you know, our culture as well is, you know, very much geared as well to um, making our children more adult versions of ourselves, you know. So there's, you know, somebody told me the other day that they um, they bought um, or they they know someone who bought thongs for their two-year-olds, right, instead of underpants, mm-hmm. right? So the two-year-olds are purchasing those, right? The mothers think this is just so adorably cute um, to, to see this, rather sexualized kind of, you know, or it has something there to do with the body. So, you know, uh, these things are available and there's a big push, you know, um, for going down that line. Um, and I th- so I think the reflective functioning comes back into play here too, you know, mm-hmm. stopping, sitting here, thinking about, you know, what are the kinds of messages Um, what kind of, you know, person do I want my child to be in terms of comfort with their body and somewhere making yourself, um, educating yourself on, you know, what are they looking at? What are you looking at? And what is that saying about you and how you feel about your body as a starting point to explore some of this so that you don't pass it down to the next generation? Just saying that you won't, uh, sadly is not enough. Right. Highly unlikely that just like, oh, you know, my mother talked all the time about food and diets and that I was too big and I'm not going to do that with my child. It's unlikely that it's not going to happen unless you actually change some of those internal maps, as, as you described so aptly in the beginning. 
Yeah. I think that's important because like a lot of it, I think it's like your point that the, a lot of this stuff is unconscious. It's outside of our awareness. Like, right. yes, we might be aware that we're going on a diet. We might be aware that we have a toxic relationship with diets. We might be aware that we don't want our kid to have that similar thing. And yet if we are dieting in front of them, we might mention oh, I can't eat yes. that because I'm on a diet or, um, oh gosh, how much fat is in that? What's the calorie <laughs> count on that? You know, like it, and it's not cause we're sitting, we're not being a bad parent, but we yes. are dealing with something in the moment out loud in front of our kid. That is literally the thing we're probably in our conscious mind wanting to prevent our child from having to deal with. So it's like, it's really hard. It's very ingrained in us. So it does take a lot of mindful awareness and really being willing to like pause and think about it. Like, yep. is going on a diet even, in, you know, is that something I need to or want to do? Do I want to reframe it? Like, if I consider it a diet, what is what is the implication there, right? Restriction and I have doing something bad and I have to do something good instead versus right. can I reconstruct my understanding of like, how do I nourish my body and model nourishing my body with foods that fuel me and make me feel good and have energy? How do we talk about that with our kids in terms of, you know, these, like one of the things I do a lot with my kids, cause I, I actually have a history of eating disorder and I don't mm. think I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but I did lots of work on that, my own work. And when I had my, when I was pregnant with my first, a nutritionist that I was seeing gave me the book, Ellen Satter's book, child of mine, mm -hmm. uh, feeding with love and good sense. And Ellen Satter is amazing nutritionist, dietitian. She's done a lot of research. She has this idea, um, that she talks about called the division of responsibilities with food. So it's mm -hmm. the parent's job to decide what goes on the plate and when the plate is served. It's the child's job to decide how much they want to eat, what that, what of those items on the plate they choose to eat and when they're done. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to allow a child to develop their own relationship with their internal body cues of hunger and fullness and that the parent isn't projecting that onto them and putting pressure on them that maps onto what the parents perceive they need in that moment. Um, and my nutritionist literally gave it and said, this is a really helpful way to become mm -hmm. more aware of how to not kind of pass this ideas that you might have had ingrained in you from a young age down to your kids. And so... I found that really, really helpful as a tool just to understand, mm -hmm. like, how do children form healthy relationships to food and how, as a parent, we can interrupt that inadvertently with the best of intentions because we also, yes. you know, we want to feed our kids. And so we want to say, like, no, you got to eat that. We want our kids to be healthy. So we have to say, you want to eat that before you eat that, you mm -hmm. know? We also don't want our kids whining at bedtime that they're starving. So we want to say, you have to finish everything on your plate. You know, I don't care if you're hungry for more bites. I mean, I don't care if you're full for more bites. So like that's normal. But to look, yeah. kind of zoom out and say like, well, what is the bigger impact of that potentially? What is that displacing perhaps? Is it displacing an internal connection to your hunger fullness cues that right. might in the long run not serve so much the child? Yeah, no, exactly. So, you know, all of those and, you know, having someone, so you had the nutritionist, other people might have, you know, uh, a 
a therapist or some kind of mental health counselor to go over um, as a way of, of having a catalyst to actually thinking about all of these issues as a, as en route to perhaps changing some of your mindset, which will then change some of the behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, like we talked about in the last, in our last episode, um, you know, we know that things like reflective functioning can be enhanced through interventions like therapy or, or self-work too, but you know, you really have to kind of have someone to help you with that process. And a lot of, you know, modifying your relationship to your body image and to your relationship to food and to reestablishing that connection of like, I can trust my hunger fullness cues. Um, that requires reflective functioning. Yes. And so working with a therapist in a way that whether it's you know, much more globally, I'm just working to kind of better understand all of my blueprints and my attachment, you know, early relationships and my defenses. And I'm just working on that more globally. Or if you're doing it very targeted by like, I'm specifically working on my relationship to food and my body, mm -hmm. either way, like the goal is to become more aware, more reflective, right. more self-compassionate, more flexible, Exactly. Which is all the stuff that you study. Yes, exactly. It's all, you know, quite interconnected, the whole mind-body piece. Um, and so then it's interesting that those two are then connected within the relational piece. That is, you know, interactions we have with others, especially, you know, children early on and through their development with someone else where a lot of this gets formed and then maintained um, but there's always the possibility for change um, later on, especially if it goes off off the rails in, in one way that we have a very strong self-writing capacity as human beings. And so wherever we can get that help to put us back on track. Um, and then at the same time, you know, we know there's a lot of suffering out there um, as well. Right. And I know a lot of parents don't want their kids to suffer. And so... Sometimes our fear can get in the way of our reflective functioning, and then we kind of repeat the cycles in it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, fear is is you know I think we we're becoming much more familiar with it every single day in terms of um, how it manifests um, with you know COVID introduced all kinds of elements of fear and and, and changed a lot of things um, for a lot of us. Um, I think we're still at very early stages of seeing, you know, how that's all going to play out. But fear was a central, a central part of that um, as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point too, because I feel like, and I, maybe this is just, I don't know if it's empirical or just my perception of things, but it feels like there's more talk in the world of psychology and just in the world of parenting that like more kids are having body image issues than they did before. Yeah. More kids are having anxiety than they did before. We know that like things are not going great right now in the world of teenagers. And I am very confident a huge component of that was COVID and just that, th you know, two and a half, three years of like just everything being completely disrupted and different and fear infused and, and just the isolation, which led to a lot of kids turning to devices 
as their way yes. to connect. Because if you're stuck in your, in your house and you're, thir- you know, 12, 13, 14 years old and every cell in your body is telling you like seek peers, you know, mm-hmm. that's my developmental task right now is to move towards those external relationships outside of my nuclear family, but I'm stuck in my room and I can't go anywhere all day, every day. And the only way to stay connected to friends is to do it by a phone or a computer. And then we get into that sort of that rhythm and that those, those behaviors get really, really, really ingrained. And now we're coming out of the need to be dependent on those devices for socializing, but we can't just turn that off. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's, we're not in easy times. No. In all kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true. I think I would say like, just as much as that's true for teens, it's true for parents. Like I know over the last three years, I've become more addicted to my phone because it's just become, it was, it was so, I was just I used it so much more. And now that mm-hmm. I need to be out and about and more present, I'm always like, oh my God, I keep reaching for my phone. It's just such an automatic, automatic habit. And it's really hard to break, but it's definitely something I'm working on because I know it interferes with my parenting and my mental sure. health. I mean, it is interesting these days to go like go to a playground and see, oh. you know, all, all all the moms, you know, looking down at their phone. Um, yeah. right. That, you know, we all, we all to some degree, uh, you know, do that. But if you put yourself, which is a reflecting, reflective functioning kind of activity in your child's shoes, um, and think about, you know, what that experience might be for them in terms of, you know, um, you know, tugging on, on, on mom's jacket or whatever, you know, that they want something and, you know, mom's looking at their phone, how many more times that they know that they have to do that, or do they have to do it louder or in a, tantrumy kind of voice or, you know, all of those Mm -hmm. kind of features um, and have figured it out in terms of, oh, when mom's on her phone or dad's on their phone, you know, I have to do it this way. Um, All kinds of of pieces, you know. Yeah. It's like a separation in a weird way. Like it's almost like like attachment. There's this famous still face um, experiments that Ed Tronic um, does, you know, where the baby's looking at the parent and the parent has a you know, neutral face um, and not smiling and not engaging with the child. Well, people on their phone often look like that too. Yeah. Yeah. I often give the example of like when I try to explain what a secure base is and what it looks like in real life, I will often give people the example of like next time you go to the playground, like pay attention, your child Mm -hmm. will typically go off, do some play, and then they'll come back to you and then they'll go off and do some play and then they'll come back to you. And it's like this loop, right? I can go as far as I can go until I start to notice that I'm far away from you. And then I come back in to refuel and then I go out again. And a lot of times it's not just, I physically come back to you. Sometimes I'm just, I look up and I see that you're there and I keep playing, right? But if all the parents at the playground are on their phones, I wonder like what impact that has to that natural sort of rhythm that children go through to explore. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to have to think about that next time I'm at the playground with my kids. (laughs) Put that phone in the car. Yeah. Oh, that's hard though, right? Yeah, it is. But we can do hard things. Yes, we can. We can. We're yeah. pretty resilient overall as a species. Yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing your research. This is super interesting. Um, I know people are going to have a lot of a lot of great things to think about after listening to this. So I really appreciate it. Excellent. 
loved being able to spend two weeks with Dr. Steele. If you missed last week, don't forget to go back and check out our first interview. And if you want to get a simple cheat sheet that will walk you through how to use the principles of attachment science to help you parent with attunement and trust, check out my free guide, The Four Pillars of Fostering Secure Attachment. You've heard just how important secure attachment is for our child's healthy development and mental well-being. And by focusing on these four aspects of your relationship, you can work towards helping your child continue to form a secure attachment bond. To download this free guide and learn four pillars of fostering secure attachment, go to drsarahbren.com forward slash secure. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash secure. Until next week, don't be a stranger.